Welcome to Mindset, Mood and Movement, a systemic approach to human behavior, performance and well-being. Our psychological, emotional and physical health are all connected. And my guests and I endeavor to share knowledge, strategies and tools for you to enrich your life and work. Today, I have Kevin Boyd with me, who's a financial coach. Kevin and I are going to tuck into the, the question, are your beliefs about money stopping you from creating wealth? So, Kevin, welcome. Hi, Sal. Nice to be here. Good. Good to have you. Kevin, considering your beliefs around money and how that might have stopped you creating wealth, when did you start looking at that from your perspective? Great question. It was about 16 years ago. I turned 40 and I was self-employed. And I kind of realized, actually, I, I had nothing saved for my future, for my retirement. And I started to get a bit worried about that. And I think the thing that became very clear to me was that I didn't really know anything about how to create wealth. I'd, I'd spent about 20 odd years being a computer programmer. So I, I knew a lot about computers. And I was often working for startups and entrepreneurs and people and I realized that a lot of these people seem to know a lot more about creating wealth than I did. And so I just got very curious, very much as a nerd that I am. So I thought, well, surely there's, there's a manual somewhere that explains how to do this. Because I was, you know, being a programmer, I was always reading manuals. So I, I did that classic thing of going on Amazon, had a quick search. And like, there are hundreds and hundreds of books on wealth. And I thought, I can't believe I've never read any of these. So I started reading a few books and, and trying to understand what's the mindset around money, because I think that's what became very clear, was it, it isn't so much the, the wealthy people are somehow cleverer or they've got some kind of special skills. It's like they just understand the rules of the game. And it is a game. And if you understand the rules well, then you can start playing the game better, like all, all games in life. And I think that the, the big thing that was revealed to me was almost like a little bit of an algorithm. So I, I came from a working class background and I'd been told basically get as well educated as possible, go to school, go to university, get good grades, and then you can get the best job possible. And then from there, you'll just spend the rest of your life exchanging your time for money. I mean, that, that, that was the formula that I'd been given. Um, and that's called a job. That's what a job is. It's like basically turn up for eight hours a day and we'll pay you whatever the market rate is for that. Um, the problem with that is you can't scale it in any way because there's always a market limit to how much they'll pay you per hour. So, And there's only 24 hours in the day. There's no way you can create any more hours in the day. So you've, you've got that basic fundamental limitation on the job structure. And when I started reading a few books, some of the famous ones like uh, Think and Grow Rich, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, these are great books that sort of go into the real basic principles. And what they pointed out was like, well, what wealthy people do is they kind of flip the formula around. So what they try and do is they use other people's time and other people's money. And the advantage of that is that it's scalable because there's almost an infinite amount of time and other people out there to, to work. So when you start applying that formula, say, well, what, how can I orientate myself in life that I can leverage other people's time and other people's money instead of just my own? And so at that time, I got very interested in property investing. So we're talking about 2006, 2007, property prices were crazy in London. It's like going through the roof. But I was very fortunate to uh, find, a, find a friend of mine who had some experience in that area, and he helped me understand what to do. And then I just basically started to apply the formula 
which was like, okay, other people's money, go to the bank, borrow some of the money that from there, all I had to do was put down 15% and the bank lent me 85%. So that's other people's money. And in other people's time, uh, rented out the property, the tenants moved in, and I was basically using their time to go to work every day and pay my mortgage and there'd be a little bit left over. So that was a scalable model. And so you could do that again and again and again. And that's what I did. So it was a real kind of nerdy approach to it. It was like, oh, let's find the algorithm <laughs> and then let's implement it, test it and correct as you need to go. Basically debug the, the program. And I have to say, what, 16 years on from that, that early experience, that model is still working for me. I still have those properties. I'm still generating income. Um, I'm still using other people's time and other people's money. So it, what it showed to me was that it is mindset that is the biggest indicator of how wealthy you're going to be. It's not like, what's the state of the economy? Is the political system fair or unfair towards me? Like all those things are true, but it's like how you play the game. That's really what will have the biggest impact on your, your wealth. I really like the analogy of playing a game because, of course, if they're playing a game, it has fun in it. And for some yeah. people, money, of course, well, money is a medium, isn't it? There's a lot of ways to describe it, but money is, um, in many ways, it's, as an abstraction. It's not even real. It's, it's, it's numbers, but, but, but it's a medium of exchange, if, if, to simplify it. But mm. what I see in a psychological perspective is that medium of exchange is often absolutely loaded with emotions and beliefs. And uh, it's so interesting to hear your backstory, and uh, and mine was not dissimilar. It's kind of growing up in the UK in eighties and what have you, that you did best that you could at school, and if you were lucky, you got a good job, and and all that sort of stuff. And that becomes a a cultural mindset, as in this is how the game is played. But as you rightly say, there's a lot of ways to play games, and the money game is a curious one because if if we don't understand our beliefs around it our emotions around it whether we have shame or guilt or um dislike for money or misunderstanding i think is one of the biggest things then then with whatever strategy you're trying to apply it's really difficult because you need to tackle that first and that's one thing i see with some of the some of the experiences i've had with coaching uh, individuals and founders around the financial element of their business and how they think and feel about it a big mm. one i notice and, and i'm I want to get your thoughts on this, is about worth and self-worth. And um, on some level, of course, if you have a, a, a company of some kind and you trade your, your skills, your services, or your products, you, you'll get some kind of remuneration, some revenue. Often, that whole thing around money for some of us can, whether it's personal or business, can be attached to worth, uh, not whether you believe we're worth it or not. Um, I'm mm -hmm. curious, as you're experiencing this field, both for yourself and the people that you're working with, how do you deal with that area of, of a person's perhaps misunderstanding or the connections to worth and, and how your algorithmic approach, your game playing approach could start to um, break, not break that down, but sort of shift that if it's become stuck? I think you're right. So much of it comes down to your, your belief. And it's basically like, like our movie script. I mean, we've written it throughout our life. And we're the hero in the movie, hopefully. Uh, we might be an anti-hero, but hopefully we're the hero. Um, and we're very, very loyal to our script as well. That's the thing. Even if it's not serving us very well, we, we will defend it no matter what. So when part of the work I do with people is to really, first of all, excavate their values, get really clear on them. Because if you ask an average person what their values are, they'll, they'll list all the good ones, obviously, the ones they expect that you're going to say. So part of how I work is I do a lot of visualization so I can get into people's unconscious. 
and reveal values that they might not even be aware of that they're honoring in their lives. And some of them will be very, very positive ones, like generosity, kindness, fairness. But often there's a few dark ones in there as well. Like you rightly point out, people often think that, that money is bad or evil. I think, I think is it the, in the Bible, there's over like two and a half thousand uh, references to money in it. I mean, the, it, it's referred to a lot. I think even Jesus, I think about 40% of all of his sayings uh, are about money as well. So it, it's definitely a subject that has uh, troubled mankind for thousands of years. It's, this is not a new issue. Um, so you're right, very much look at one's beliefs. But I think um, people I know that, that, that have, I say, a lot of wealth, the thing that really makes them stand out is that they're very productive. And I think in a, in a purest kind of free market economy that, that none of us particularly live in, but that it, let's take on the purest economic thing, people who are more productive tend to become wealthier. So would you look at the wealth as a bad thing or would you look at the productivity? So let's take an Elon Musk, for example. It's like, okay, this man had lots and lots of money, but he's been incredibly productive. He's made all sorts of extraordinary things that we, we all want, need, and desire. So is that a bad thing? And then what he does with that money is he reinvests it to become even more productive. So we need people like that in our economy. It's that, that top 0.001% who, who generates so much of, of the productivity and the wealth and the innovation that we need. So so wealth at that level is, uh, I know, often looked upon as, as a bad thing. Why do we need billionaires? I think is a, a refrain you hear a lot. It's like, well, most of those billionaires are investing that money in being productive. Uh, they're not just sitting on a giant pile of cash and laughing wickedly like a supervillain. So, um, and often they don't even have that money. It's all invested in businesses and assets and what have you. So I always have this little mantra, which is, if it's good enough for the very top people in society from a wealth point of view, then it's good enough for me. And it's good enough for my clients and it's good enough for you. It's like, so, so it, it, again, it's that understanding the rules of the game, understanding how you believe your role is in that world. So we all kind of have a money blueprint in a way. We all have a ceiling in our head. Like if I was to earn over a certain amount of money, then after that, that's wrong. Um, and it can be very interesting to find out what that number is for people. Some people, it might be more than 25,000 pounds a year. Some people, it's 50,000. Some, it's 100,000. I think the mean average salary in the UK is about £34,000 now. You know, it's interesting to find out what your number is because as you as you approach that number, you will start to you'll take your foot off the accelerator. Like, well, I don't need any more money, so I'll, I won't open another business or I won't hire another employee or I won't invest more. I'll just stop where I am. And I think that there's a, the truism that there's not many problems in life where having more money isn't helpful. So again, money won't make you happy. But the working towards it, becoming productive, becoming successful, doing things that you're really passionate about, and then it, the wealth comes from that, then I would say that is a sweet spot in life where you can have, you're doing the things you want to do and also enough money comes along for you to be able to do the things you want to do. And I think if you're a kind and generous person when you haven't got much money, then you'll just be an even more kind and generous person when you have more money. And, and the people I know who are multimillionaires, they give a lot of that money away. It doesn't have to be this terrible thing. And in fact, if you really do want to help certain causes, then earning more money means you can help them more. You can give more to them. So, um, so yeah, so I think that whole belief system around money is very, very important to sort of get into the weeds and reveal what's really driving people um, to, to not, be, not to be more wealthy. Because all wealth really means is that you have more resources. Think of it that way.
It's, it doesn't mean a pile of cash. It just means like, oh, I can now do the things that I want to do and I need to do, help the people I want to help. That's really what wealth's about. Really nicely put. I, I, I'm going to quote a, something from Jay Shetty. Uh, Jay talks about if you want income, aim for impact. And I yeah. really love Jay's approach. And of course, he's got a, a Buddhist touch or a, something, a monk-like touch uh, from his backstory. But there's something interesting, isn't there, about the, the difference between looking to get more income, whatever that looks like for, for each of us, versus making more impact. And as you've alluded to with productivity, well, if you're um, making good impact and good productivity in the work that you do, the business that you run, the way you conduct yourself, then... In some ways, money is a byproduct, and it kind of it makes me think about confidence because that comes up a lot. And I know there's confidence issues around money, confidence issues around self confidence and, and our behaviour. But confidence is a byproduct; it's like a payoff. Uh, and and of course, a lot of the time, money can be a bit like a byproduct and a payoff as well. Because if you uh, let's say you have a, a great coaching business, uh, you write a, an incredible book, you whatever it is you do that has value in the world that people genuinely get value and, and good stuff out of, then you will by default rec recoup income. You'll get revenue because you're making a good impact, which then leads me to thinking a little bit deeper around morality. And morality and money is um, something I really want to get your thoughts on and to kind of flesh out a little bit. Because as we, we've already sort of pulled out, there are some beliefs around money being bad and, and, and perhaps biases in society where there is seemingly uh, inequalities for a whole host of reasons and and, and morality is it sort of makes me think of the stoics and going back to you know old roman times about morals and values and um, ethics and really having that as a part of your toolbox uh, how you approach yourself and the world and, and your business what's your thoughts around morality and money because we're already getting some really lovely reframes about how you think about money and how you think about wealth and it's fascinating to hear that Tell me a little bit more about how you see morality and money and how we can bring those together. Because for those of us who really do care about many things and many people, the moral side of it is so galvanizing. And I think when that's coupled with a, a power to create revenue, that's, that's a really in interesting thing. What's your thoughts hmm. on that? It, it's a big subject, the, the morality of money, because obviously everybody's morals are different. So classically in the investing world at the moment, we have this thing called ethical social governance, ESG. And nearly every fund out there is now claiming to be ESG, but they're three completely separate subjects. <laughs> so, for example, last year when we were all in an energy crisis, would you say an oil company was now unethical when we were all desperately needed their energy? Would you say an arms company is, was unethical last year when you're a Ukrainian? He was like, no, I need these arms. So we all have a different set of morals. So I'm, I'm not saying one is more right than the other. So you, you it's down to you to decide where you want to put your money. So I think one of the great things about creating more wealth is you can choose where that money goes. There, there are thousands and thousands of different funds you can invest in, all with different focuses. So you can go in and say, well, I want to help uh, developing countries. I want to work, uh, say, I want to invest in clean water technology. And then that can be, that's sort of something that money you have created has, has a very powerful impact, as you say, a moral impact on the people who need it most. And I think, uh, I think it's one of the UN millennial goals that they said, one of the best ways to help the planet and the environment is by actually lifting as many people out of poverty and making them wealthier. Now, that's slightly counterintuitive. You think, well, they're getting out wealthier, they're going to consume more, isn't that bad as well? It's like, well, wealthier people tend to look after their environment as well. So 
I think um, in the last 20 years, we've lifted more people out of poverty globally, uh, mainly India, China, South America. So those people are now living more middle-class lives. So they're not chopping down forests to burn for firewood. They now have energy coming from even, even coal, even a coal may seem bad, but it's not as bad as wood. And, and so it goes. And so the more you lift people out of poverty, the wealthier everybody becomes, the more the planet improves, actually. We have more, I think we have more trees growing in Europe now than we did a hundred years ago. It's like, so wealth does actually improve the lives of everybody, really. I mean, I think um, the top 1% in the UK pay 30% of the UK tax. So we're, <laughs> those wealthy people, that money is being distributed. Now, of course, we can all debate how well is it distributed? Should there be more? That's fine, but that's all. The, but you've got to grow that pie, haven't you? So that people, there's more of it to share. So I think whatever your whatever your political or moral views are about money, if you can create more of it in as ethical a way as possible for you, and then share that money in the way that you want to share it by donating to charities or investing in parts of the world that you you feel that need help, um, then I think money becomes very moral. Obviously, if you if you want to steal money, extort money, lie about money, and they do bad things with it, then then it is very immoral. So money isn't, as you rightly say, it's not not the problem. It's we as human beings and what we do with it, really. Um, yeah, yeah, very nice. And and that, and that's lovely, isn't it? Because if we pull our pull our attention back to ourselves and say, well, if money isn't the bad thing or the thing I need or whatever it is, it's it's actually an expression of productivity or impact or moral choices, then then that actually cycles the ownership back to the individual. And I know I'm, I'm very much about us as individuals having been self-empowered to make good impact in our, in our world and our lives. And when I think about that, I think, well, okay, so if I have, it's my moral code and, and I want to, to do some good things in the world, then it is actually perhaps a moral obligation to, to do good work and to charge the right income uh, or try the money to get the right income and, and to use that well. And, one of the things that I've aligned to is uh, a lovely company called Ecology. I'll put the link in the show notes. And and basically, I plant trees, and you can kind of track them around the world. Uh, it's I like it because it's tangible. I know the carbon offset thing's got a bad rap, and it's quite a complex issue, which I I don't really have the competence to speak about. But I do know about real things like sticking a tree in the ground, a sapling. It's a real thing. It's measurable, and Ecology do seem to have a very measurable and honest and ethical company where they're planting a lot of trees. And it's small. Climate climate change is is, a, is massive and it's going to change so many things for all of us. But I think the interesting thing is like I'm putting some of my gross profit into that and that feels good as one of the things I like to do. So it comes back to, I guess, our moral choices, our way that we are conducting ourselves is a big driver for how we see wealth and whether it's going to be created in a, a healthy way or perhaps, a, let's say, a not healthy way based on our own experience. One thing I wanted to ask, it's a great question, is how much is enough? <laughs> because when people say, oh, I want more money, it's like, okay, well, how much? <laughs> it's like with anything in life, you want more. Well, same with I don't know, weight training or running, like you want to get an outcome. Like, well, what, can you measure it? Because if you can't measure it, then it's that hedonic treadmill or the, the hamster on the wheel kind of model. Like, if I just had a bit more money or if I just had a bit more wealth, I'd be okay. So how much is enough? You you, you mentioned earlier on in our conversation about the medium uh, income for people in the UK. But how, as a, as a financial specialist, do you help people figure out how much is enough for them? Yes, that's a really powerful question. And, and um, 
when I work as a financial advisor around people, particularly around retirement, one of the things you do, I mean, there's some great software around now where you can do cash flow projections and you can put in the money they have, uh, their pensions, all these kind of things. And often you can say to people, well, actually, you could retire now or like a year earlier than you thought, because by working for another two, three years, it's not going to make that much difference. Because if your outgoings are quite low and your income is quite high, then what is the point of carrying on working? Or maybe working full time and maybe you can work less. So so you're absolutely right. Working out what that number is for you. So often we, we come up with round numbers, don't we? Say, well, I need a million pounds to retire or I need two hundred and fifty thousand. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you only need hundred and twenty seven thousand three hundred and twelve. And that's enough to to generate enough income for you to live off in the way you live now. Um, and you can stop working and maybe go and do the things you want to do. So, yes, it's a big thing. And we're all living a lot longer as well. I know people complaining about retirement age being raised on state pension, but that's actually a sign of a positive thing because we are all living longer. So um, unless you're French, of course, and then you might be <laughs> having a riot. Um, so, yes, I mean, the, I think 25% uh, of us will probably get to early 90s now. So we've got a long life ahead. And we don't want to be working, particularly in a job that we're not enjoying, any longer than we really need to. So it is. it does come down to the individual thing, but I do, it's one of the things I do. I go into people's budget. We work out exactly how much money they have, what they're spending, what their investments are. And then from that, I can work out like, well, actually you could retire at 63 instead of 67. Um, so yes, it's a, it's a good question because sometimes people say, well, I want more money. And I say, well, there you go, there's one pound. So now you've got more money. <laughs> So yes, it can often be very vague. It was like, well, how much is more for you? Is it another £10,000 a year or an extra £500 a month? Or will I drill down, get really specific about it? Because I think when a goal is fuzzy, it's very hard to achieve it. When you have clarity about what you're, you're aiming at, then you've got a lot more chance of, of getting there. And I think noticing the opportunities to do that. Recently, I had a, I got a property in London and had a car parking space and I never really thought much about it and then one day there was a train strike and I had to book a, a parking space at um, Wick Airport and I realized that you could rent out your car parking space and make money from it so so now that brings in an extra 150 pounds a month for me now it's not a huge amount of money but that adds up over the years that's going to be a few thousand pounds every year then 10 10 15 thousand pounds over 10 years like I invest that I put that in a pension that grows suddenly I've so for a tiny sum of money 150 pounds a month it can suddenly have a quite an impact maybe i could retire a, a year earlier now so it's about looking at things like that like small acorns that you plant now like maybe you could rent a room out in your house that brings in an extra five six thousand pounds a year that's what's that over 10 years that's fifty thousand pounds that's a lot of money so it's about getting very very detailed on the small acorns to plant now which will turn into that kind of oak tree that that will provide for you in in retirement that makes me think of a, a a couple of a couple of points certainly from a psychological sort of lens over it is firstly the distinction between short term uh, and long term or short vision and long vision and it, it's quite a big challenge that comes up certainly in my coaching practice that we are imbued in a culture of immediacy whether that's you can scroll and look for something you can search something on the internet use a bit of ai software to write something very very quick um uh, answers and certainly in the in the health and uh, fitness world there's a whole model around like you can change everything in 12 weeks and it's like it's just 
it's just rubbish, right? It, it takes a long time to make sustainable change in many areas of life. Now, you can get immediate change, but they're small. So that makes me think of the difference between short-term thinking and long-term thinking. And with short-term thinking, there are, of course, things we need to do today. You might need to budget for this week or this month. You might need to pay for something, and that's fine. But if you don't apply long-term thinking, then you're going to be missing out on that, I guess, compound effect. Your £150 becoming £1,000, becoming £10,000. And long-term thinking is something which is not used as much as perhaps it could be, certainly in today's culture, or certainly with the people I work with. Short-term, immediate results based on how we use the internet, how we use business, uh, perhaps even in the fitness world where there are promised results in a very short space of time. And I'm very interested in the lining the approach of health and wealth. And the reason I say that is because when we think about pensions, it's very easy to think about money. Of course, you put money aside in this in a pension plan or whatever that looks like. Uh, and it builds over time and it obviously pays you dividends. What I'm very interested in is aligning thinking around health pensions and wealth pensions and and how those two come together. Because if you uh, are staying well uh, every day, every week, every month, every year, and staying active in, in a good way for you, then that is also fundamentally lining up with your financial later life and I think that's a really interesting thing that that's, that needs to be allowed for because if you've got a whole host of money in the, in the bank account and you're unable to move, that's not a great way to, <laughs> to capitalise on all those um, those gains. So, um, what's your is that something you touch on when you're working with clients to how how they might consider the long game, how they approach their thinking, and perhaps and how they approach their the way they look after themselves and the way they look after their money are, are they connected? I think you make a good point there. There's no point putting all your money in a pension and then you're half killing yourself. And so by the time the pension comes to maturity, you're not going to be able to enjoy it. And I, th I think the two are closely linked. Like, as you say, your your health pension as well as your financial pension. Um, I, touching on your issue about the short-termism that we all suffer from, I mean, it's just a human thing. We've all got it. <laughs> we would all like to have everything now. Um I think one of the great mechanisms about pensions, the thing that everybody complains about pensions, like, but I can't touch it now. Exactly. That's, that's a feature, not a bug. You don't want to touch it now. You want to have that slow compounding interest that becomes the hockey, the hockey stick after a while. That, you know, you're, yeah, you're putting your £100 away every month in your pension. And yeah, I mean, you look at it after a year and it's like, well, there's only £1,200 in there. But after 10 years, it's £12,000 plus all the compounding. So maybe it's fifteen, twenty thousand pounds 20000 it, And that's what you need. You need um, a discipline where you put this money away. I always say put an amount of money in your pension that you're not going to miss. That should be the bare minimum you do. If, if, if £100 a month, you wouldn't even notice it going out your bank account, then that's the amount to put away. If you put £500 a month in your pension and every month you're looking at it going, oh, that hurts. I can't do the things I want to do then you will stop putting that money in. So far better to put a very small amount in that you'll ignore and forget about and it will grow and grow and grow over a long period of time. That's the right way to invest for the long term. Don't put in a crazy amount of money that's going to, within six months, you're going to stop it because then you've achieved nothing really. Um, so yes, I think it is one of the great things about pensions that it is that you can't touch it until, well, current legislation is about age 55, 56. So that's a good thing. Especially if you start very young. I mean, if any young listeners here that have been forced to have a pension at work from the age of 21, I think it is now, isn't it? Uh, that's amazing. You're going to have 50 years of compounding 
that's going to be incredible by the time you retire. So, um, yeah, the power of compounding, the, the power of putting small amounts away that you won't notice. It's like you've got to distract that monkey brain of yours that just says, I want instant gratification now. It's like, yes, of course, we all, we all need some of that, but we also need to put a bit like a squirrel. We've got to put a few acorns away and just let it grow very slowly. Um, and the other great thing with pensions is that the government gives you money on top. I mean, every, every £100 you put in, they'll put £25 on top straight away. You're already up 20%. Isn't that great? You've already, you've already won. <laughs> and if you're a higher rate taxpayer, they'll put um, £50 on top. Even better. So, yes, I think pensions are a great mechanism. Partly because you can't touch it until you're old enough to need it. And you get all this tax relief on top. And it just... The power of compounding, as Einstein either famously or uh, allegedly said, is the eighth wonder of the world. And it is. It is. Compounding is incredible. But it does take time. It's, it's like, it is like planting uh, a seed for a sapling, as you were saying, with the trees. It will take some many years to grow into a magnificent tree. And it's the same with saving money for the future. And a pension is definitely the best way to do it. Yeah, really, really solid advice. It's again, it's a mindset view, isn't it? Of just knowing that mm. we we do like the short term. We we do think, oh, I'll buy this thing or take this holiday or whatever it is. And um, and actually, it knowing that that's very much the human mind. So it's catching yourself out. It's it's a little like well, habit structures, habit forming. Certainly for uh, when I do habit forming work, it's all about building something which is consistent. Like you were saying about putting a certain amount of way, and it can be repeated and is. Because it becomes a habit, it's it's really easy because to make the effort yeah. think, well, how much should I put away this month? I wonder. You think about it. You're ju it's just, uh, it's really tricky, isn't it? So that's such solid advice about the amount you're not going to miss and just go for the long term. Um, I want to get your your knowledge on uh, assets. Assets is a, is a term that means a thing. <laughs> Depends on what we're talking about, asset. I mean, a house is an asset. A business is an asset. Uh in our modern world, intellectual property is an asset. Digital media is an asset. And um, in terms of asset building, uh, I know some of the the people I work with, they their assets are their business. And they, they build their business, and, then, and at some point, they might look to sell. And what's your what's your guidance on how to look at assets if that's an, an area that someone's going to be thinking? Okay, well, I've got a bit of spare revenue. I, I want to do well. I want to follow these kind of guidance points. How can people think about assets? And which assets should we look at? Yes, I mean, it's a great question again. I mean, it's uh, in in the world of financial advising, there's one mantra, which is diversify. And the reason they say that is because nobody quite knows what, what is going to do well. In truth, with all, all of the high-paid guys in the city, if they're completely honest, nobody really knows. Um, I think one thing that's become clearer and clearer over time is that solid physical assets always seem to weather the storm. So, for example, uh, gold, for the last 5,000 years, it hasn't lost its value. It's gone up and down in value, but it hasn't lost its value. I think um, I read recently that a house in 1950 cost the same amount of gold as it does today. So even though, even though the, the ticket price has gone up by how many times? 100 times or something. But the actual amount of gold it takes to, to buy that house is exactly the same. So that's an example of a very physical asset. Now, obviously, gold is great, but it has it has a few problems. One, it doesn't generate any income for you. It just sits there. It doesn't do anything. Um, it can actually often cost you money to store it as well. So, 
Um, the other famous one, of course, is property. And property has continued to hold its value over many, many years. It will go up and down as it is at the moment. Property prices are dropping a little bit, but that's really just a correction because we had a very huge increase over the last couple of years. So it'll come back to its sort of mean average price, which is really what's going on at the moment. So not really losing any value. It's just correcting back to the steady growth that it has. And property tends to go up about at least by the rate of inflation and sometimes a bit more. So it's a good inflation hedge. Um, so I think when looking at assets, you want to diversify as much as possible. So, so have some in property. <clears throat> Classically, you always have 10% in gold, if you can, or, or some kind of precious metal, gold, silver, um, commodities, physical things that you can point at that are real, that the world needs. I mean, I think cryptocurrency has shown that over the last 10 years. I mean, it is just a bit of code running on a server. There's nothing physical there. Um, and obviously it went up by an extreme amount over the last few years and then has plummeted as well. Um, it'll all, always have a place, crypto, but it's not... One of, one of the things you want to look at is a store of value. How does something hold value over a long period of time? I'm talking decades here. And crypto hasn't really shown its ability to do that. Unless you bought it 10 years ago when it was like a dollar, then fine. But if you'd have bought it last year or two years ago, you're looking at a 60, 78% loss now, aren't you? So that's, that's one of the things. So good old fashioned solid assets are still good. In times of crisis, people put their money in healthcare, utilities, energy. These are just things that everybody needs and they always will. There's never gonna go away. So when looking at an investing, definitely invest in things that, that are permanent and solid. I think gold and property are two, two probably one of the best assets that you can hold long-term, we're talking here. But another thing about investing is, if you need that money within the next five years, then you shouldn't be investing. You should have that money just in an ISA, cash ISA, getting two or 3%. I know it's not much, but you aren't gonna lose any money. Well, you will lose a little bit through inflation, but, it, but the number will not go down. But if you put it in the stock market, then next year, say you need it in a year's time, or what if the stock market's doing one of its many corrections that it likes to do, then you've lost 10 or 20%. So that's not a good investment. So investment is a long-term game, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. That's what you should be thinking about that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, it's kind of it's lovely to hear that the real stuff matters and the long game matters to, to simplify your, your very nice yeah. uh, clarity and guidance there because it's easy to get caught up in quick wins and think, oh, kind of crypto, you should do this, you should do that. And yeah. And, and and possibly there's a place for it, but I guess a bit like cycling all the way back to your original statement about well, it's 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 all a game. So if you're playing crypto, you like with all games, you might lose. So how much are you prepared to lose? And that's okay. So if you think, oh, I'll give it a shot, but I'm happy to lose five hundred pounds, five thousand pounds, whatever the number yeah, is that's yeah. appropriate for for us. I, I, then... would, I would agree. It's it's a, what you call a speculative asset. So you put your speculative money in. Now for most people, that's maybe ten percent. 10 to 20% max. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be getting much above 20%. So it's like you're taking a punt. It might do well, uh, but it might also lose all of it. Now that's fine. If you've only lost 10 or 20% of your wealth, it's annoying, but it's not, it's not end of the game. Whereas having that, the bulk of your money, I mean, right now, the, the best place to have your money is in government bonds because they're paying like 4 or 5% and there's zero risk. Like the UK or the US government are going to pay that money out. There's, there's almost no risk of that not happening. Well, if it did happen, then the whole economy, <laughs> global economy would fall apart. But, you know, there is obviously some chance. 
Whereas crypto, yeah, it may well go up by 10% by next month, but it could also drop 20% the month after. And, and that's the problem. That's the problem you've got. Um, so yes, I agree. It's by all means have a bit of fun with a few kind of crazy assets that some mate has told you about an amazing company and it's going to double overnight, then fine. Put a few thousand pounds in if you want, but don't put all your money in. Yeah, very wise. I've got a friend who's got Banksy artwork, um, and that is a great asset because they're worth yeah. they're they're just worth so much in, in not just monetary terms because they're worth a lot, but in terms of like they're an incredible pieces of work, and that's a that's a whole other field. But again, it's a solid thing, isn't it? It's a tangible. That's mm. a piece of artwork by a very um, highly rated artist, and you know that that will stand the test of time. So I guess it, it sits alongside with something like gold or property because it's tangible, it's it's physical, and it and it's got longevity. So really interesting, Kevin. I want to bring this to kind of a summary for 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 our, all our listeners to perhaps pull up everything you've said. Oh, of course, there's probably notes being taken from the show, but if there is a few things, maybe one, two, perhaps even three, three key things that you'd say, this is what I recommend you either think apply or do what's your professional advice that we can use as some takeaways that we start already putting into practice now thinking about now and, and going 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 taking this stuff straight into practice i think one of the key things i do with clients is that we look at their income and then we start putting them into sort of separate pots so it's so easy to overspend because it all goes into your bank account and you've got transactions going all over the place and you're not clear you know how much money you have so like one pot will do is create a spending pot. So say you on average spend 300 pounds a month just on going out, coffees, dinners, what have you. So we'll set up either a bank account or some more modern accounts like Starling allow you to have sub accounts and we'll put the 300 pounds in there. And that's, and that's all they can spend out of. And then when that's gone, it's gone and they won't spend any more. And that way you kind of ring fence all these different areas. And then you can have another pot, which is obviously, say, you're saving up to buy a new car. So we'll call that the new car pot. And they can put £200 a month in there. And they're not touching that. That can only be used to buy the new car. And what that does is give you some control over your money. Because so often we, we have, you ask most people, like, what do you spend money on? Like, I have no idea. And I'm not a fan of keeping count of every little transaction. Like, oh, I spent £5 in Starbucks. I spent £7 here. It's like, that becomes tedious very quickly. And it's no fun, really. You've got, you've got to make these things fun. But if you say, well, on average, I spend £300 a month going out, then just put that in the, in the fund for, for going out. So that, that helps you get some control of your money. And I think that's almost the first step is like control your spending. Um, so the next thing I would look at is like, well, what, what is your money blueprint? What is your beliefs around money? Now, there's work I do with clients to help them get at that, but you could you could just write that down yourself or have a chat with a friend and say, well, what do you believe about money? What do I believe about money? And just sort of draw it out of yourself and write it down. And then you can look at that when you're thinking about money or investing or uh, applying for a job that may pay more than you feel you're worth. It's like, oh, okay, what's coming up here? It's this belief again that I'm only worth a job that pays 30,000 a year. This one's 50,000 a year. I, I couldn't possibly do that. So that's, that's another thing, getting really clear on what are your money beliefs. I think the other thing is to, I'm very keen on measuring wealth, not by the number, but by the freedoms it gives you. So I, would, I like to measure my net wealth by, if I stopped working tomorrow, how long could I live without having to work? Now, most people, it might only be a few weeks or a month or two. And so that, that gives you a real visceral sense of like, well, how much... How much wealth do I have? 
So how do I get that up to six months where I, I don't have to work? Or how do I get it to a year? And that's a very different way of looking at, at wealth as well. So instead of getting tripped up by the number, you're looking more at like your freedom, your financial freedom. How, how long could I be financially free for? Because that to me is the ultimate goal, financial freedom, that you don't have to work. You may choose to work, you may want to work, but you don't have to work. So they'd be sort of the three main ways I would look at money going forward. Yeah, really, really solid, clear and helpful advice. That's that. Uh, so much appreciated. Uh, I, I'm a Starling Bank user, and I, <laughs> I'm a big fan of. It. I think they're yes. a really great, great bank account. And uh, yeah, yeah, they did these like virtual cards, and you can essentially set up. I think about five of them, and you can pay. Yeah, I have these one for myself. I, I dump in it. I think it's like a hundred quid a week, and that's just for more extraneous stuff for coffees, lunches, and the kind of the bits and pieces. Yeah. And and it's really easy because I can, I pull everything out of that one account. And as you rightly say, by getting clear on the buckets or the what are you going to call that, much easier for sure targeting our beliefs around money uh it's it's absolutely fundamental because it all starts within doesn't it and um yeah and i love what you said there about really questioning the the experience not the number because that's in many ways it's arbitrary isn't it? it's like well i've got a million pounds i've got 20 pounds <laughs> it's like well but what do you can do with that some people have 20 pounds and they don't have any outgoings some people have a million pounds and they've got a million and 10 pounds outgoing so they've already got a they're already in a negative <laughs> so i think you're you're spot on i, I love that, that that thought kevin I want to thank you so much for your time, sharing your thoughts, your knowledge on uh, financial wisdom. I know you know so much more. I'm going to put lots of details in the show notes, how to reach Kevin. Uh, Kevin, I just want to check. I believe you have uh, an offer if someone wants to reach out for you. Can you say what that is? Yes. So what I'm offering at the moment, if you book, uh, I do a 20-minute audit uh, for free. It doesn't cost you anything. We have a chat about your current position, where you're at. And if you book that audit through my website, you'll get a free copy of my book, which is called The Job Delusion, which is talking about this, like how you think a job is going to provide everything you need. And I sort of challenge that a little bit, look at belief systems and, and basically document my journey of how I got more, became financially free through looking at my beliefs and changing them. Thank you. That sounds a really great offer. Uh, all links will be in the show notes, how to reach Kevin, how to reach myself, how to get Kevin's offer there and, and so forth. So go to the show notes, all the links will be there. Thank you, dear listener. I trust that you have gleaned some knowledge today and will be uh, much hearty and uh, readily putting uh, <laughs> all these things into practice so your, your wealth is healthy, moral and growing. Kevin, thank you once again for your time and everyone else, I'll see you on the next one. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe. And if a friend would benefit from hearing this, do send it on to them as well. If you would like to get in touch yourself, then you can go to my website, which is saljeffries.com, spelled S-A-L-J-E double f e r i e s saljeffries.com hit the get in touch link and there you can send me a direct message if you'd like to go one step further and learn whether coaching can help you overcome a challenge or a block in your life then do reach out and i offer a call where we can discuss how this may be able to help you until the next time take care